0: So, if you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, please open your copy of it to Romans chapter 11. This is our third week, our third installment of the 11th chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And in this 11th chapter, Paul asks Has God rejected his people? Has God rejected Israel? And his answer, of course, is an emphatic, no, not at all. He gives first the example of his own life, Paul, the apostle, an ethnic Jew, but also a regenerated believer in Jesus Christ and part of the true Israel. So there's no way that God has rejected his people because we see Paul as an example. But then he also talks about the remnant, that the remnant is an example that God has not rejected Israel. So A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the remnant and what that means and what that looks like. But then last week in verses 7 through 10, we saw Paul deal with the rest. After having dealt with the remnant, the small part of the larger whole, then last week in verses 7 through 10, we're we're dealt with the rest of ethnic Israel, those who are not part of the remnant, those who are not part of the elect. And we saw the hard truth that God hardens them. And this morning in verses 11 through 15, Paul is going to address for us what God's aim was in hardening ethnic Israel. What what was God aiming at in hardening ethnic Israel? So let's read verses 11 through 15 this morning. I'll read and then pray and then we'll dive in. Verse 11. So I ask Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Would you pray with me? Father, now as we turn to your word, as we remain in a spirit of worship, elevating you in our hearts and lives as king and redeemer for us and for our brothers and sisters, we now continue in that spirit of worship as we turn to your word and ask you to speak to us from it. God, would you do that this morning? Would you speak to your people Father, my brothers and sisters here don't need to hear any, anything from me. They don't need to hear anything that originates from me and anything that is in any way tainted by my own opinion or thought. We need to simply hear from you. So God, if I, if I say something from up front that's, that's not grounded in your word and it's not of you, God, may you cause it to fall on deaf ears. But Father, may your word and the heart behind your word and the and the meaning of your word drive deep into our souls and bring about fruit for your kingdom. And may you be glorified in and through our lives as a result of it. That we ask in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing that we need to do as we seek to unpack this passage this morning is we need to understand what that third person pronoun they is referring to. Who's Paul talking about when he when he uses that pronoun. It's, it's very important because we see that pronoun or a version of it eight times in verses 11 through 15. In verse 11, we see it three times. He says, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And then he talks about their trespass. In verse 12, he says their trespass again. And then he says their, their failure. And then he talks about their full inclusion in verse 14, Paul talks about his desire to save some of them. And then in verse 15, we see a couple more times as he refers to their rejection and their acceptance. Who is, who is the they and there that Paul is referring to in verses 11 through 15? Well, from our study last week in verses 7 through 10, we heard Paul talking about the rest of ethnic Israel. And he said that the the, the elect obtained righteousness, they obtained it, but the rest were hardened. The rest of ethnic Israel that didn't obtain it by faith in Christ, they were hardened, he said. And so in in that passage, Paul was referring to ethnic Israel as they or them. In verse 8, he says, God gave them a spirit of stupor. In verse 9, he says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block to them. And then in verse 10, he says, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever referring to ethnic Israel. And then he follows up immediately. See, we we cover a passage, and then we wait a week, and we cover another passage, and so we might miss this. But he follows that immediately now in verse 11 with this question, did they stumble in order that they might fall? So the they from verses 7 through 10 last week, referring to ethnic Israel, is the same they that he's referring to now in verses 11 through 15, which is the ethnic Israel that had been hardened by God. And so Paul is asking here in verse 11 Did they, those ethnic Israelites who had been hardened by God such that they would not respond to the gospel, such that they would not come to faith in Jesus Christ, did they stumble in order that they might fall? So what does he mean when he talks about stumbling here? The word stumble just means to stumble. But it follows on from what he had just said in the previous verses. In, in, in verses 9 and 10, he, he talks about them being, uh, them, their table being for them a snare and a trap and a stumbling block. In other words, for for ethnic Israel, God hardened them in such a way that their table, referring to God's bountiful blessings to them, God's good gifts to them, God hardened them in such a way that his bountiful blessings to them became a snare and a trap and a stumbling block, became an idol to them. They began to replace the rightful place of God as their greatest treasure and delight. So he follows that up now with talking about a stumbling block again. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? So Paul's asking here a question about the purpose of their stumbling or the extent of their stumbling or or their hardening. He says, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Is their stumbling because of their hardening to the extent of which they would fall? So what does the word fall mean? Well, the word fall in greek means fall it just it means that it means to descend but somehow paul is distinguishing it it here from stumbling normally when you stumble you fall right and so Paul is distinguishing the idea of stumbling from the idea of falling because he says, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Was that the purpose for their stumbling, which again happened because of their hardening? Was was that God's intent is that they might fall? So what is this idea of falling beyond just stumbling? In order to understand that, we need to see some other places where this word is used. And we find this word used later in chapter 11, and in its connotation and other places in Scripture, we understand that he's talking here about falling in such a way as to no longer be able to get up. So it, has, it carries the connotation of, of a permanent falling. Look at verse 22 of chapter 11, just a few verses later than where we left off. Paul says, Note then the kindness and severity of God severity towards who? Towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And so Paul talks about His, God's kindness is to those who belong to him, those who are his. But God's severity is to those who have fallen and to those who have been cut off. This is not a This is not a temporary falling. This is a, as one commentator puts it, a falling into irretrievable spiritual ruin. A falling such that you cannot get up from it. We see this in a couple of other examples. One is Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 14, verse 4, where he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And then the writer of Hebrews puts in Hebrews four eleven. let us therefore strive to enter that rest. He's talking about the rest of God's eternal kingdom in heaven. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may, but may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Both of those examples referring to a permanent falling. And then in Isaiah chapter 24 verse 20, The Greek translation of that verse in the the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says this, the earth staggers like a drunken man, it sways like a hut, its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and it will not rise again. So that's the idea of falling here. It's not a temporary falling that Paul speaks of in verse 11. It is to fall and not get up. It is to fall in such a way that you're not able to get up. In other words, it is a falling into irretrievable spiritual ruin. And so this is a a legitimate question here. He's asking, did the stumbling of ethnic non-elect Israel, did their stumbling brought on by God's hardening of them, did that happen so that they would fall into irretrievable spiritual ruin? That's an important question. And I don't know about you, but as we've been working through chapters 9 through 11 thus far, I would anticipate the answer to be yes. Yes, they stumbled so that it would be in such a way that they will not be able to get up again. That God's hardening on them. And their rejection of Jesus as Messiah is once for all. And they will not be able to recover from that. After all, they certainly don't deserve to recover from that, right? They don't don't deserve that grace. None of us do. Because of our sin and rebellion, all of us are in the same boat with ethnic Israel. All of us deserve this hardening because of our rejection of Jesus and our rejection of the gospel. And so we might expect the answer to be yes, but instead Paul gives an emphatic no. He says, by no means. And so we have our first point from this. And our first point, our first principle from this is that the hardening of Israel is not permanent. It's not permanent. It's, It's somehow limited now we have to stop here for a moment and realize that this would have been incredibly encouraging to Paul. Paul would have, he would have found great delight and joy in this truth, that the hardening of his fellow kinsmen is not permanent. Permanent. After all, he's been lamenting over their hopeless and lost condition all throughout chapters 9, 10, and 11, right? At the beginning of chapter 9, he said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart because of them, because my fellow brothers and sisters and kinsmen according to the flesh, my fellow Israelites are completely and hopelessly apart from God, Yahweh, I have unceasing anguish in my heart and deep sorrow over this so much that he then said, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says, if I could, I would change places with them. They're accursed and cut off from Christ." And if I could, I would exchange places so that I were cursed and cut off from Christ so that they wouldn't be. Paul laments this over and over. First verse of chapter 10, he said, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And then at the end of chapter 10, Paul gives us that picture of God holding out his hands all day long, to a rebellious and contrary and disobedient people lamenting over this. Don't you know that Paul must have been delighted now to be able to proclaim that this hardening of his fellow kinsmen wasn't permanent, wasn't forever, wasn't for all time. By the way, as we read through chapter 11, this this squares nicely with the flow of how Paul has been presenting this. Remember in verse 1 of chapter 11, he said, has has God rejected his people? Has God rejected ethnic Israel corporately? And he says, no, absolutely not. The example of Paul, I'm I'm an ethnic Jew, and yet I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a part of true Israel, the people of God today. And, And you've got the remnant The remnant, as he said in those verses, chosen by grace, chosen by God to be a part of his kingdom. So no, he he hasn't rejected them at all because of himself and because of the example of the remnant chosen by grace to be recipients of God's righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. The remnant was ethnically Jewish. And yet also part of spiritual Israel, the Israel of faith. And and their their mere existence was further evidence that God had not rejected ethnic Israel. But then he said, what about the rest? That's what we looked at last week. What What about the rest who weren't part of that? Doesn't their existence prove that God has rejected the rest of ethnic Israel? Paul says now emphatically, no, it does not. Thankfully, praise God, no, it does not. And why? Because they're hardening, by conce- consequence of which they're now outside of God's people, that hardening was not to be a permanent hardening. It was not for the purpose of them falling in such a way that they fell into irretrievable spiritual ruin. But how and why is israel's hardening not permanent or what what is the what is the purpose for israel's hardening not being permanent paul says by no means in verse 11 by no means rather through their trespass keep in mind that word that that pronoun there all through this passage refers to ethnic israel their trespass through their trespass salvation has come to the to the gentiles so let's stop there Last week, when we talked about God's intentional and willful hardening of ethnic Israel, we pointed out that his purpose in doing so was in such a way as to show the fullness of his glory by also demonstrating that part of his character and nature and being, including his wrath against sin and his power. And we quoted from chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, and said that God's purpose in hardening ethnic Israel was to display the fullness of his glory. As chapter 9 said, to show his wrath and to make known his power and how he handles vessels of wrath in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. So that was the first reason that um, that we've unpacked so far in chapter 11 of the purpose for God's hardening of ethnic Israel. The first purpose is what we covered last week from chapter 9. To display the fullness of his glory. And that, that's not just a first of many. That, that really is an overarching purpose of everything that God's do, God does, including God's hardening of ethnic Israel. But this morning, in this passage, we're going to unpack a couple of additional reasons or purposes or end results, if you will, of God's hardening of some of ethnic Israel. And it's going to further answer the question, why is his hardening of ethnic Israel partial? Why is it temporary? So the second purpose, it comes straight from verse 11 that we just read, is to bring salvation to the Gentiles. That's what verse 11 says. Through their trespass, that is the trespass of ethnic Israel, hardened ethnic Israel, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. We also see this in the next verse, in the conditional clauses of verse 12. Paul says there, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean. Now, we'll deal with the second part of that conditional statement in just a moment. But for now, just look at the if clauses. He says, if their trespass, that is the the trespass or the sin or the rejection of God of hardened ethnic Israel, if that trespass means riches for the world, meaning the non-Israelite world, and if their failure, again, the failure of hardened ethnic Israel. And what was their failure? It was a failure to obtain the righteousness that they sought by following the law. They failed to obtain it, Paul has said earlier. They failed to obtain it. And he says, through their failure comes riches to the world. He says, that failure meant riches for the gentiles. So what are what are these riches that Paul speaks of here in verse 12? What well, what are these riches that that because of Israel's hardening now belong to gentiles? They don't they don't belong to the, to ethnic Israel, they belong to gentiles. So what are these riches? According to adherents and proponents of the prosperity gospel, the riches of the gentiles here refer to a literal riches, the material wealth and the material riches of, uh, that, that now belong to the Gentiles. But in context, that's not what Paul is speaking of at all. We read from chapter 9, verse 23 earlier. Paul talks about God intending to do what? To make known the riches of his glory and mercy and knowledge to vessels of mercy he wants to make known the riches of his glory and then in chapter 10 verses 12 and 13 Paul says this he says for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved so what are those riches Paul refers to it again in his doxology at the end of chapter 11. In verse 33, he will say this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He's not referring there to material wealth and material riches in the least. He's referring to spiritual riches, namely the riches of knowing God as Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. He's speaking there about the the richness of having the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to our account by faith in Jesus. There is no greater wealth than knowing Christ as Lord and Savior. And there is no greater riches than having his righteousness as our own. And I would submit to you, Conversely, there is no greater poverty than not having any righteousness of our own, which is what Paul has been telling us about all throughout the book of Romans. And so this richness is the the righteous life of Jesus, the perfect obedience of Jesus to the law, credited by faith to our ledger account before God. So that when he looks at us, he doesn't see our lack of righteousness but he sees the righteousness of his son. There's no greater riches than that. And Paul says the trespass and failure of ethnic Israel because of their hardening and because of their unbelief and, and because of their rejection of the gospel, their trespass and failure to achieve righteousness by following the law, what does it do? It makes way for Gentiles Like us, to have access to those riches. Now we have access to those riches. The riches of being reconciled to God by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. So in the passage that follows, the one that we're looking at this morning, that we'll cover next week, Paul seeks to explain this principle through the use of an agricultural analogy or metaphor. And that is the metaphor of an olive tree. And he will say that an olive tree, or at least the kind of olive, olive tree that he's referring to in the analogy, has two kinds of branches. First of all, obviously it has natural branches, the natural branches of the olive tree as it grows. But then this olive tree that he's speaking of in this analogy also has another kind of branch. And those are unnatural branches that didn't grow directly out of the olive tree, but yet were grafted in to be a part of that olive tree. And he tells us in that analogy that we'll look at next week that the olive tree is true Israel. That spiritual Israel that the New Testament refers to as the church. The true Israel comprised of both Jews and Gentiles who have come to faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope. So you've got natural branches on this tree, which are ethnic Israelites, but you've also got unnatural branches on this tree, which are Gentiles who are grafted in. And Paul says that some of the natural branches are cut off from that tree. And he tells us, he'll tell us next week, that they're cut off because of their unbelief. Because they don't have faith in Jesus as their Messiah. They reject Jesus as the promised anointed one from God that has come to take away the sins of man. They reject him. And because of their unbelief, because of their rejection, they are cut off from that tree. Because of their unbelief and because of their hardness of their heart. And that their being cut off, here's the good part of that, their being cut off makes room for, For unnatural branches to be grafted in. Gentiles now. To be grafted in to this olive tree by faith in a Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that analogy of the olive tree is an explanation of the principle that Paul's laying out for us here in verses 11 and 12. That one of the purposes or, or results, if you will, of Israel's hardening by God... Ethnic Israel being hardened by God, one of the results of that is salvation to the Gentiles, which, parenthetically, has always been God's intention. We, we, we don't look at redemptive history as plan A, and it didn't work out, and so now there's a plan B. It's not as though God said, you know, I'm going to start out with this chosen people, this chosen nation, Israel. And then Israel messes things up and they're no longer the people. And so God has to come up with a plan B. So he sends his son to redeem humanity and brings in the Gentiles. That's not it at all. From the very beginning, from God's first promise with Abraham, go back and look at it in Genesis 12, from his very first covenant with Abraham, God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation through Isaac, through Jacob, through the children of promise. I'm going to turn you into a great nation. And he says this. He tells him why. He tells him why he's going to make him into a great nation. So that through you, Abraham, through you, you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. All the nations of the earth. All the peoples of the earth shall be blessed Through you. And he goes on to confirm that covenant over and over and over again in Abraham's life and in Moses' life and in King David's life over and over again. That covenant is renewed over and over again that the nations was always his target. And then we see what? In Revelation 7, we see gathered around the throne room at the very end this this crowd of worshipers from every tribe. Every language, every tongue, every culture, every race, all peoples, Pantata Ethne, every ethnic group represented, that was always God's plan. So this, is not, this wasn't God's, God came out with plan A and they messed it up and so we went to plan B. This was always God's intention. God hardens the heart hearts of ethnic Israelites to somehow in God's economy to make room for you and I, to make room for Gentiles in this olive tree to be grafted in by faith. Amazing, but it doesn't stop there because there's another purpose in Israel's hardening, another end result if you will, another benefit of God's hardening of Israel. And it follows on from the salvation of Gentiles by a Jewish Messiah. And that is the salvation of ethnic Israelites. The salvation of ethnic Israel. Now we see this hinted at in verse 11. Look at the end of verse 11. He says, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And here's the purpose statement. So as to make Israel jealous. Now, why is he doing that? Why, why is he hardening Israel in such a way that they reject Jesus as Messiah in order to make them jealous? Because the Gentiles now are grafted in. Why, why, is he, why is he doing this? We saw the jealousy of Israel back in chapter 10, verse 19, when Paul records what God says to Israel through Moses, when he says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And so Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus. And it's beginning to make the Israelites, ethnic Israel, angry on some point and jealous on other points. Now, why would Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus make the Jews jealous? I mean, after all, isn't, didn't, isn't that what they wanted? Didn't they, didn't they want to put Jesus to death? Why, why would that now make them jealous? Well, because remember what this means for Gentile believers. It means that Gentile believers are now a part of true Israel. We go back and read through chapters 8 and 9. Who is true Israel? Not just those who are descendants of Abraham physically, but those who are descendants of Abraham by faith. And so, Gentile believers, they're now true Israel. They're they're part of true Israel. And so the Old Testament prophecies, I'll repeat what I said when we went through that. The Old Testament prophecies to Israel are now ultimately fulfilled in true Israel, in the New Testament church, the true Israel of our day. So this means that that these Gentiles are now children of Abraham, while the physical descendants of Abraham— They're they're, they're no longer children of Abraham, at least not with respect to God's promises and covenants with Israel. Now those belong to the church, to the true Israel, those of both Jew and Gentile descent who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so now consequently, these Old Testament covenants to Israel now belong in part to Gentile believers. And Paul says this has the effect of making ethnic Israel jealous of them, which is understandable. But why would God do this? Why why would God want to make ethnic Israel jealous, as he says in verse 11? So as to make them jealous. Why would he want to do that? Why would God want to make ethnic Israel jealous? Well, think about it. Why would he want... To make ethnic Israel jealous of the Gentiles' possession of that righteousness that ethnic Israel sought to obtain by following the law. Doesn't it make sense that God's intention in this is to make ethnic Israel want and desire and long for that righteousness with God that these Gentile believers now possess. That's what he's intending. That's what he's doing. What verse 11 hints at, verse 12 gives us a bit more clues about. Look at verse 12. He says, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now we've already looked at the if clauses of the conditional statement in verse 12. Now we need to look at the then clause. It says, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, which we said referred to the hardening and unbelief of ethnic Israel by means of which God would make room on the olive tree for Gentile believers to be grafted in. Now the then clause. Then how much more will there full inclusion mean there again referring that pronoun referring to ethnic Israel how much more will the full inclusion of ethnic Israel now mean he asks so what is this full inclusion of ethnic Israel that Paul speaks of here in verse 12 I believe he's talking about the salvation of ethnic Israel And we see that spelled out for us in no uncertain terms later in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 11. Look there with me. Verse 25 and 26 say this, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. What is the mystery? It's the mystery of the hardening of Israel. He goes on to say, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. What makes it partial? It's limited in some way. It's not a forever hardening, as he said earlier. It's not a permanent hardening. It's, it's limited in somehow. And he tells us that this partial hardening has come upon ethnic Israel until a certain time. So it's, it's, so it's limited in time. Not in scope, not in extent, not in ability, but it's limited in time. And so there's going to be a time in which that hardening is lifted from them. And when is that time? He says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so uh, until those whom God intends to save from among the nations, when they all respond to the gospel and come to faith in Jesus Christ, when that throne room around, around Jesus in heaven is filled with people from every tongue, nation, and tribe, when the full number of Gentiles has come in, Then he says what? And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Why? Because that's a partial hardening. And when the full number of of Gentiles comes in, that partial hardening is lifted. And in this way, he says, all Israel will be saved. Now, we've already made reference to this interesting passage in our study of chapter 11. And when we did, I told you that what I believe this is saying is just the very plain reading of what it looks like it's saying, and that is that all Israel, all of ethnic Israel at some point alive in a future point in time will be saved. That all of ethnic Israel at some point in a future time will be saved. Now, we're not there yet. When we do, we'll have more fun with that, and we'll unpack it even more and say a lot more about it. But for now, I think we can all assume that Paul's reference to full inclusion of ethnic Israel in verse 12, or, yeah, in verse 12, is that which he affirms also in verses 25 and 26 when he talks about all Israel being saved. So whatever it is that we understand verses 25 and 26 to mean is also what he's talking about in verse 12 when he talks about the fullness of ethnic Israel or the full inclusion of ethnic Israel. So then verse 12 is saying that there's this third purpose or this third benefit or result from Israel's hardening. First of all, it directly opens the door for salvation to come to the Gentiles. The natural branches are cut off and it makes room for these unnatural branches to be grafted in how by faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. But also this in turn leads to ethnic Israel becoming jealous of that. Becoming jealous of the fact that these non-Jews, these Gentiles, now possess the righteousness that they failed to obtain by following the law. And so they become jealous of this. And God uses and utilizes that jealousy to lead them back to himself. To lead them to faith in Jesus Christ as the Jewish Messiah that he is. As we'll see in the olive tree analogy next week, he speaks to this part as well. The natural branches were cut off by unbelief. But they can also be grafted in if they do not persist in their unbelief. In other words, if they come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's not another plan of salvation. It is not another means by which they are saved. They are saved the same way Gentiles are saved. Only by faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way. And so if they don't persist in their unbelief, if they come to faith in Jesus Christ, they are grafted in back in. So now we can look at verses 25 and 26, and we, and we see the full inclusion of ethnic Israel, that, that all of ethnic Israel at a certain point in time will come to faith in Jesus as Messiah. But we can also see this happening in the lives of individual Jews and ethnic Israelites in Paul's day and in our day today. So, there's the, so this happens on both a corporate level and an individual level. We see it on this large-scale corporate level in verses 25 and 26 when there's this massive conversion of ethnic Israelites to faith in Jesus Christ as their King and Lord. And we see, I believe, that that this happens in the end times. It happens right before the second coming of, of Christ after the fullness of Gentiles, after all the full number of those whom God is saving from among the non-Jews have come to faith in Jesus Christ, then there is this statement, all Israel will be saved. So we see it on a corporate, massive level, but we also see it on an individual scale, on an individual level. And, And this is what Paul says his ministry is all about. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. Paul says, "Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. I make much of my ministry. We we read elsewhere about the humility of Paul." over and over again. He doesn't make much of himself. So why is he here? Why is he magnifying his ministry? Why why is he doing this? What is the hope? What is his hope in magnifying his ministry in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles? He tells us in verse 14, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. And so we have this Oscillating back and forth in this passage of the benefits of God hardening ethnic Israel first to the Gentiles, as now because of that, salvation comes to them. But then it oscillates back to to ethnic Israel because now that the Gentiles have come to faith in Jesus and they're true Israel, now they become jealous of that, and as a result of their jealousy, God uses that to bring them to faith in Jesus. Now For now, in Paul's day and now in the church age on an individual level. But then one day, by God's grace, on a corporate level, there will be this massive conversion of ethnic Israelites back to faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul doesn't end there because there's actually another oscillation back as a benefit to the Gentiles. And we see that in verse 15. It says, for if their rejection, again, that is the rejection of the gospel by ethnic Israel. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. We're not talking about universal salvation here. He's not referring to everyone, every person in the world, but to the Gentile world in general. So if their rejection of the gospel means the reconciliation of the world... In other words, now the gospel is open to Gentiles. So if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, he says, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Their acceptance referring to their acceptance of the gospel, their acceptance of Jesus Christ as their hope, this mass conversion of ethnic Israelites in the last days before the second coming of Christ. What will that mean but life from the dead? So if their rejection of the gospel, which is a negative thing, right? Their their rejection of the gospel is is a negative thing. Paul says, what if their rejection of the gospel means a positive thing, a very positive thing, namely that salvation now comes to the Gentiles? Then he says, what will their acceptance mean? Their acceptance of Jesus, their acceptance of the gospel, which is a positive thing. What will that now mean for the Gentiles and he tells us life from the dead. What is he referring to there? How are we to understand life from the dead? Now some will take this phrase figuratively that um, this phrase life from the dead refers to spiritual life out of spiritual death and that certainly has merit. Paul has talked about that um, in, in Romans 6. He talked about us being made alive out of death And so certainly that that interpretation has merit. But I see a couple of problems with that. First of all, the the grammatical structure of verse 15 and verse 12 here show us that Paul is building from the lesser to the greater. We we see that explicitly in verse 12. He, He says there, Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So he's building from the lesser to the greater, and he's very explicit about that in verse 12. In verse 15, he's not as explicit, but we still see it. Building from the lesser to the greater. He's doing the same thing. He says, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, in other words, a bad thing means a good thing for Gentiles, what will their acceptance, a good thing, mean but life from the dead? So we see it there as well. He's building from lesser to greater. And so if life from the, get, from the dead refers to spiritual life from spiritual death, as miraculous as that is, as amazing that, as that is, that's simply almost synonymous with reconciliation of the world. That's simply synonymous of coming, with coming to faith in Jesus Christ instead of building from the lesser to the greater. But there's another reason why I have a hard time with the interpretation that life from the dead means spiritual life from spiritual death as a benefit back to the Gentiles. And that reason is this. The full inclusion of ethnic Israelites, according to how we're reading Romans 11, comes after the full inclusion of Gentiles. Right? That's what he said in verses 25 and 26. Until the fullness of Gentiles has come in until the full number of those whom he's going to save out of the nations has come to faith in Jesus Christ. At that point, then the hardness will be lifted, and then all of ethnic Israel alive at that point in time will be saved. So then how can life from the dead, as a benefit for Gentiles, refer to spiritual life from the dead? Because after this massive conversion of ethnic Israelites, the full number of Gentiles has already come in. So it can't refer to that. It's got to refer to something else. So it refers here, I believe, my interpretation, the best way to understand life from the dead is to simply take it literally, that it means life from the dead, resurrection from the dead, that the full inclusion of Jews, this massive conversion of ethnic Israel, Israelites to faith in Jesus Christ at some point in the future will somehow be tied to the resurrection of believers in Christ will somehow be tied to our resurrection or at least to the life that we enjoy with our Lord after our resurrection from the dead as Jesus sets up his kingdom. So I don't know if you see this, but what Paul is presenting to us here in part is kind of a sequence of events of what's going to happen in the end. Now, we need to be very careful about charting a sequence of events of what's going to happen at the end times because quite honestly, there's a lot of confusing scripture that we have to unpack in order to walk through that, and we don't have time for that this morning. Lucky you. But in general, we see a description of how God is operating in the current church age and how he's going to bring that age to a close. God has hardened ethnic Israel, and this hardening won't last forever. It's temporary. It's, it's partial. It's limited in some way. But it is for now. And in part, it is for now so that salvation will come to the Gentiles. There's room for Gentiles to be grafted into the tree. But this makes ethnic Israel jealous. And God uses that jealousy to bring ethnic Israel to himself. For now, in part, on an individual level, as ethnic Israelites come to see Jesus as the Messiah. But then one day, after the full number of Gentiles has been brought in to the, God of, to the to the family of God by responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ, this hardening will be lifted. And there will be a massive corporate conversion of ethnic Israelites to faith in Jesus Christ. And then after this massive conversion of ethnic Israel, the church will enjoy life from the dead. How in the world do we apply a passage of scripture like this? What What are the ways in which we are to respond to this? I want to suggest to you two Implications of this passage. One is an implication for our worship, and another is an implication for our mission. First, I believe as a result of what we've seen here, we should glory in the news that Gentiles have been included in this salvation. The salvation that was promised to the children of Abraham, and that by faith in Jesus Christ, We have become children of Abraham. And that means we are the true Israel of God. Listen to how Paul puts this as he addresses the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, therefore, and he's speaking to Gentiles. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, and without hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, which is a key coded phrase for because... But now, because of faith in Jesus Christ, because now you are in Christ by faith, what happens? You who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so now we Gentiles are no longer separate from Christ, we're no longer excluded from citizenship in Israel. And we are no longer foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Now we are, by God's amazing grace, recipients of the covenants of promise. And we are no longer without hope and without God in the world. Now we have a sure hope because we do have God in this world and in the next. And he goes on to say how this happened. For he himself, speaking of Jesus, for he himself is our peace To you who are far away. That's us, that's the Gentiles. And he came to preach peace to those who were near. That is ethnic Israel. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. We unnatural branches have been grafted into the to the, to the vine, to this olive tree. And we now by faith along with the elect of ethnic Israel, we are the true Israel and recipients of the covenants of promise. And praise God for that. We should glory in that. But secondly, a second implication, is that as we glory in the fact that we Gentiles have now been grafted into the olive tree, of true Israel, the Israel of of faith, that we've been grafted into that vine by faith, as we glory in that, we ought to be reminded of why we have been grafted in and that our being grafted in is intended to bring ethnic Israel to jealousy. And so there is a missional implication here for us then Let us, who are Gentile believers in Jesus Christ, let us glory in the miracle of us inheriting the promises to Abraham and being adopted by this Hebrew God, Yahweh. Let us glory in being rescued by this Jewish Messiah so that the ethnic Israel of our day might be provoked to jealousy that God might use that jealousy to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. Our approach should be like that of the father of the prodigal as he turned to the older son and he said, "Come on in. You're a part of this family as well. May we sow glory in, in the fact that we have been made recipients of the covenants of promise to Abraham and to Israel that the ethnic Israel of our day says, wow, I need to consider that, that God may use that jealousy to provoke them to belief in Jesus Christ, that they too might become part of not just ethnic Israel, but spiritual Israel, the true Israel, the church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.